Amen. If you have your Bible, then please take it today and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, today, we, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can grab one of the black Bibles. It's on the end of the pew, and it's on page 953 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one. Uh, it's our gift to you. And some of you may not have caught last week when I said we were going to take a few weeks away from Romans. So you were expecting me to say turn to page 942 in Romans. But no, we're turning to page 953 in 1 Corinthians. And the reason we're doing this, we partly just because it's good timing in Romans, we just got to the end of chapter 4, which is the end of a major section in Romans, and also because we need to think carefully about what we are about to propose, uh, what we are about to to act toward in terms of uh, adopting, by God's grace, a revised church constitution. Why we would do that. And not just why we would do that, but the purpose for doing that uh, in the terms of the next steps, which the main thing that we're trying to do is to institute what we call a plurality of elders at this church. I'll just tell you really quickly, we're going to be talking about this over the next few weeks. Uh, I have sent you emails. We've talked about this literally for years. Um, and, uh, and, and I've got a booklet that I wrote for you that came out of those emails that I sent you last year, and the deacons are going to give you that as you go. We're going to have all kinds of ways to carefully, carefully think through what the Bible says about these things. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, hey, right now, Daniel Wigginton is the only pastor slash elder slash overseer of First Baptist Church of Matawan. And that's not the worst problem in the world. But it's not what the Bible looks like when it talks about uh, how a church should be led. And now there's all kinds of questions about, well, does that mean we're trying to hire another full-time person? Do we need to buy another parsonage, something like that? The answer is no. And we will talk through all of those reasons later that there can be people like me who have this as their full-time job and calling in life. There can be others who serve as laymen who yet are also entrusted with that position of authority and shepherding in the church. And, and so not everybody has to be doing necessarily the same amount of work. Not everybody has to have it as their job. Not everybody has to be the main preacher or something like that. We will talk through all of those issues, but just to say our goal here is to conform this church to the commands and examples of the New Testament. To look at the Bible and to say, God has laid out instructions for us. Now, there are some who would say, well, how you organize a church doesn't particularly matter, or maybe even would say, well, the Bible doesn't really give us very great instructions on that. You know, if it really, really mattered to God, then surely there would be a particular book of the New Testament that just laid out the precise order of church governance and and leadership structure and those sorts of things. And and really, you know, because the gospel is the main thing and there's no explicit just, just laid out passage about those things, well, that doesn't matter all that much. But the fact is, even though it is not the most important thing, I'm telling you this right now, and we'll, we'll get to where the scripture even says this in what we're looking at today. The gospel is the most important thing. The changes that we want to make to our constitution and our leadership structure, they are not the most important thing. Yet, they are things that Christ has given us commands about. And if Christ has given us commands, then we want to follow what he has said. We want to walk faithfully after the Word of God and to conform ourselves to the pattern, the blueprint design of Scripture. Now, just imagine that you're working with an architect to plan a home. 
Some of you have done this before. Probably everybody has, has daydreamed about this at times. Just, if I were going to plan my ideal house, how would I do it? Some of you probably even have plans sitting at home. It's tucked away in your desk of how you would do this. Well, just imagine that you sit down with an architect, you plan it all out, you, you are so excited, and then you sit down with the builder, you, you get everything picked out. It's a process I've never been through, but I heard that it's a very, very tedious process of picking out every kind of tile, every kind of carpet, every kind of bathroom fixture, every everything, right? You imagine you get all of that done, and you finally, you're handed the keys to your new house, and you walk in, and you realize, wait a second, we planned on three bathrooms, there's only one bathroom. What are you going to say to the builder? You say, this is not the plan. Now, the builder could turn to you and he could say, well, your old house only had one bathroom and that worked fine. Or, or he could say, it was much more efficient to do it this way and it still works. What are you complaining about? Well, that's not the plan. And so as we, as we look at what the New Testament says about these kinds of details about the church and leadership structure, those sorts of things, we can acknowledge, yes, things can work a different way. Things can work a different way, but why would we look at the plans and the designs that God has laid out and the commands and the examples in the New Testament and say, but I have something more efficient. I have something that works. Well, the idea here is, Let's go by the blueprints that God has laid out in order to glorify and honor God as the one whose word is true, as the one who actually cares about these things. And we know that because he said something about it in his word. That's the idea here. So let's think first of all about the authority of God's word over God's house. Now I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but I'm going to now ask you to just keep your finger there. And we're going to turn back and we're going to look at Exodus chapter 26. Of course, we went through the book of Exodus a while back. And, uh, and, and we were, I don't remember exactly what day we were in this chapter, but as we were going through and we got to chapter 26, there is a description here of the way in which God had prescribed for Moses and the builders that he would commission to build the tabernacle. So the people had been brought out of the land of Egypt, and now God was getting the Egypt out of them. And God was showing them, here is how you are to walk after me as a people who are holy unto the Lord. Here is my design for you, and here is my design for how you are to order your, your nation. Those of you got the moral law, the civil law. And now here is my design for your worship, the ceremonial law. And within the ceremonial law of where we are, he had laid out very, very detailed instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built. All of the furniture that was to go into it, the walls, the coverings, the ceiling, the, the posts, the rings that held down, all of the straps that kept the, the ceiling held on as this sort of a tent-like structure. He laid out instructions for exactly how the garments of the priests inside were to be made. He laid out all of this in extreme detail, and look at what it says in Exodus 26, verse 30. He says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it you are shown on the mountain. Do you hear that? Now, guess what? This is not the first time God had said this, even in the book of Exodus. It's not even the second time, it's the third time. 
You, you may flip over and, and see in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, even as he is talking about other things that would go into this, the, the tabernacle, he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. And then in Exodus 25, verse 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Do you see what God is saying? He's saying, I realize you could think of other ways to do this. I realize that, that maybe this tabernacle seems too small for you, and you'd like to make it bigger. Or I realize that, that you, you, you could think of a, a, a different way architecturally to hold down the straps. But here's exactly how I want it done. Here's how many pillars to put across the side. Here is what the rings need to be made out of. Because this is my house, says God. This is my plan. And sure, there's a hundred ways you could think to do it, but I have said, here on the mountain, here is how I want it done. Do it exactly according to this plan. This idea carried over not just to that, that first tabernacle, but also to the permanent temple that got built in the city of Jerusalem. The one that David wanted to build, but God told him that his hands were bloody and he would have his son Solomon build it. And yet God gave David the plans for that temple to give to Solomon so that it could be built exactly as God wanted. And that's the scripture reading that we had at the beginning of the service. It, it, like it says in First Chronicles 28, all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. So God had an exact plan of how he wanted his tabernacle and his temple to be built. And it says in Hebrews 8, 5, that those things... The tabernacle and the temple, how all of those were arranged, they were arranged not as an end to themselves, but to point to bigger and greater and spiritual things that were coming, that ultimately we will see when we're face to face with Jesus in heaven. It says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What Matthew Henry says about this, he says, note, Whatsoever is done in God's service must be done by his direction and not otherwise. Even as we say, hey, God's plan is going to be complete in heaven. He's going to get it all worked out there. You know, the, the things that we do here, they're not the ultimate realities. They're pointing to the heaven rea heavenly realities. And yet God has given us plans to point toward those heavenly realities. The plans of the Old Testament for the tabernacle are pointing forward ultimately to heaven. They're pointing to Jesus, who is the temple, the one who has come to dwell among us, to be God with us, God dwelling with his people. And these plans also point to the church. I want you to see this next. If you're following along on the back of your bulletin, this is where we get to point two. All right? You, local church, are God's temple. So you have kept your finger in 1 Corinthians 3, and you can turn back there and just keep your Bible open there now. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the passage right now, and we're going to look at the end of the passage together with the beginning of it, but let's read the whole thing. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. 
Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." Now listen to the language of verse 9 carried into verses 16 and 17, and I would, I'm going to try to pound into your heads today that that's what it's talking about in all the verses in between there too, no matter how you've heard them before. This is what they're all about, is God building His church. God building His church through those who love God, and because they love God, love the church. Love the church that God has built, that Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That this matters to God. He says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. Now there he's talking about those who were uh, shepherds over the church in Corinth. He's just gotten done with this analogy of a field, of being like a farmer, where he says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He's saying, I was the church planting pastor in the city of Corinth. You, church in Corinth, you're there because, because God used me to come and bring the gospel to you and get this church started. And then I went off and I started preaching the gospel elsewhere and planting other churches, but God sent Apollos. God sent other elders who were there to, to be over that church and to water it. But it says, it, 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 this is, is kind of like this farm and I, and I planted, somebody else came and they, they did the cultivating and the watering. But it's God who gave the growth. God gave the growth. And then in verse 9, where we just started, he switches analogies. So he had been saying, you, you're like a, a farm field that God has, that God has been cultivating. But you're not just like that, you're also God's building. And when he says building, he's going to go on and clarify, I'm talking about the temple. He says in verse 16, do you know that, not know that you, that's you plural by the way, I hope that, that your Bible makes this clear. There's a footnote in the ESV on you where it says the Greek for you is plural in verses 16 and 17. It says you, plural, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. This is a side note. It does say in 1 Corinthians 6, you individually Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the only place in the New Testament where this indwelling of the Holy Spirit in this way, speaking of us as a temple, that's 1 Corinthians 6 is the only place where it applies that to individuals. So we can rightly say, yes, that does apply to individuals, but the main way that the Bible talks about it, more than that way, is in talking about you together, church. You are not just individually indwelt by the Holy Spirit believer. But we come together, church, it says it right there in verse 16, you together, church in Corinth, or First Baptist Church of Matawan, you are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you guys, y'all, however you want to put it. 
And he says this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God cares about his church. Now, if you hate the church, you don't love God. I want to say that again. If you hate the church, you do not love God. The way that it's put in, in, in 1 John is the one who has not loved his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? We love the brothers. That's what the church is. We're not talking about a, a, a hierarchical institution that, that is headquartered in some faraway place or something like that. We're, we're talking about us together. Uh, it, it is an institution that is made up of human beings who are living stones, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who together we are, are, are chosen and arranged as a body by the Lord Jesus Christ according to his will. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. You are fellow citizens. He's talking to the church at Ephesus here. This applies to the church in Matawan here. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Hear that? He's growing us together joining us together, growing us into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, in him, excuse me, in him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amazing. Oh, guys, God loves the church. And he calls us to love the church too because it is where we are built together as a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Here's how it's put in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now listen to this, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's the illustration that the Bible is giving us. And we're going to see this as we, as we get into verse 11 as well. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. God rescues us out of the stormy sea of sin, the death that we had in sin, he pulls us out and he puts us on the rock of Jesus. And you're not there by yourself. Look around. There's a bunch of other people that God also pulled out of the sea and put on the rock of Jesus. And as we're standing there together on the rock of Jesus, he builds us together as living stones. He causes us to be a holy temple in the Lord. He builds us up as the spiritual place for spiritual sacrifices, a home of the Holy Spirit. This matters to God. As we, as we think about, well, when the Bible talks about the church and it talks about these living stones and our love for the church, is it talking about the people or is it talking about the institution? I want to submit to you today that it's both. It's both. You can't, you can't really separate this out, especially when you're talking about a biblical church, which is a local congregation covenanted together around the gospel, exercising the ordinances according to the commands of the New Testament, 
holding each other accountable. Is the church the people? Absolutely. You need to love the people, and the church is the institution. He has set it up to be an organization with officers. Pastors and deacons are the the two officers in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, what that looks like, the qualifications, all those kinds of things. But as we come, this is God's plan. This is God's plan. Now, you may occasionally gather at your house on a Friday night for a Bible study with some people that you know who love Jesus, and that may be an encouraging thing to you, but guys, that's not the church. The the church is this place where God has, has pulled out people that he has chosen, put them on the rock of Christ, built them together, made it an institution for his glory where we show love and we have something that is orderly. And, and that will stand beyond us and beyond the time when a Friday night Bible study at our house eventually fizzles out. This church, by the way, by the grace of God, has been here for almost 172 years. And we're, we're grateful to God for that. Founded on Christ, founded on biblical principles, and we are seeking to follow after those same, same things. We are called to love and to cherish Christ's church. It says in 1 John 4, 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. It's just a saying right there. If you love God, you're going to love his church. You're going to love his church. doesn't mean that you'll always think that program that got started up is the best possible program. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> Sometimes we can do better. But we're going to love God's people, and we're going to love the way that he has put us together, which is called the church. Christ is the church's indestructible foundation. Look at verse 11. Or verse 10, excuse me. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, what is Paul talking about? He's saying that he is an apostle commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring the gospel and that he had come and laid out a plan not just to preach the gospel but also to establish this institution that was called First Baptist Church in Corinth. I'd like to think that's what it ought to be called. And he, he came and, and he laid it out and he said, I laid a foundation, but here's, here's the foundation. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You hear that? That is the essential thing of the church, is to be on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. We'll talk more about that when we get to verse 12. But no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here is the most important thing about the church. It is also the most important thing about you. That we need to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is the diamond. That is the diamond of the gospel as we look to Jesus. These these additional things, they, they, they matter. They are the setting of the ring. You want to make it beautiful, but the diamond, the foundation, the cornerstone is the person of Jesus Christ. 
and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. we, We need to know these things. We need to know about sin and righteousness and judgment. We need to know that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is our only hope and our full hope and the source of our grace for all eternity. We need to know about justification by faith alone. We need to know that there is no way that we can present our merit or our works to God and have the eternal reward of of life for what we are or for what we have done. It's only by looking to Jesus, the rock of our salvation, and resting on him. You need to know the gospel. You need to know God, man, Christ response. Okay? You need to know that God is our holy creator. You need to know that man has fallen into sin and every single one of us are born sinners who have no hope for eternity for ourselves. We fall righteously under the wrath of God for our sin. That's God and man. But you need to know about Christ. The Christ is the solution. Jesus has come and has died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. And whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's the response. God, man, Christ, and response that the proper and right response is to turn in repentance to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. That's the foundation of the church. And that's the foundation that you, building stone or potential building stone in the hand of God, you must be built on that foundation, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Now, lots of people have tried to make other foundations. You could try to make the foundation of the church to be community service. Community service is a good thing for the church to do. We could stand to do better as a church in our community service. It cannot be the foundation of the church. You could try to make the foundation of the church being good, appearing holy. That's going to fall through. You know why? Because God looks upon the heart and not on the outside. That's what the Pharisees tried to make their foundation. Following every rule they could think of in every way they could think to apply it, appearing holy before everybody, standing on the street corners to show how well they could pray, that is a foundation of sand that will fall through in the day of judgment. What you must be built on, you must be built on Christ. It says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Is that saying something different? Is there a different foundation? No, it says Jesus is the cornerstone. And through the apostles and the prophets, we have the New Testament, we have the Old Testament, we have the Bible that God breathed out so that we can know Christ, the cornerstone, so that we can be founded on him. And we come to Jesus in this good news of the gospel that the apostles and the prophets bore witness to. As we saw in the very beginning of the book of Romans, that we have the gospel of God concerning his son. That's the foundation. We come to Jesus. You can think of this like a train. If you're on the right train, you're going to the right place. There is only one train going to the right place, and his name is Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. The illustration, obviously, that's in this text is of a building, not a train. There is one foundation, only one foundation, Everything else will fall to pieces. Christ will not. He is our solid rock. You need to come 
to Jesus. And if you would be part of Christ's church, not just the, what we call the visible church, which is, you know, the people that we put on the roll on the list, but the actual church enrolled in heaven. If you want to know that your name is written in heaven, well, here is what you should think. Am I on the foundation of Christ? Am I on Jesus? If everything else was stripped away, and you're everything else that you have to stand on, because one day it will be, it will be stripped away. You stripped away all of the, the pretending that you could do. All of the trying to appear as though you have things together. If you, you strip away all of your attempts at good works, and you're honest that every single one of them has been tainted by some kind of sin in thought, word, or deed. If you strip away all the achievements that you have, if you strip away all of your self-esteem and all of the ways that you've been told what a good boy you are, what a good girl you are, strip away all of your self-doubt as well, all of your self-focus that you've had. Strip everything away. What are you standing on? What's your foundation? What is going to take you to heaven when one day you have no choice but to let go of everything that you have in this life? Because that day is coming, and it could be sooner than you think. When everything is stripped away, are you resting upon the foundation of Christ alone? Christ, who was crucified for our sins, who was buried and on the third day rose from the dead, and is our Lord, the God-man, Jesus Christ. If your feet are resting anywhere else, then you are in eternal peril for your sin. Come to Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him, believe in him, and you will have eternal life. And we, church, we are built together on that foundation. He's brought us together out of the stormy sea. He has planted our feet on the rock, and here we are. Here we are together. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? Well, the next thing it's going to tell us is don't just stand there. Do something. Here's what it says, verse 12. Let me go back a little bit into verse 10 where he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. We have on the rock of Christ this building, this church. He says, let us take care how we build on it. He says, here's how it could be built on, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What this is saying is that we need to build by God's design with God's materials upon the foundation of Christ. Now, first thing i got to do here is I have to wipe away what you have thought this verse meant. Okay? Because the next thing it says, it talks about this being tested by fire, that, that if you built with gold, silver, and precious stones that it's going to last through the fire, you'll receive a reward. If you built with wood, hay, and straw, that's going to get burned up. You'll be rescued, but only as through fire. Well, you have probably got stuck in your mind, even if you have heard me tell about this before. I know you probably still have this stuck in your mind because I've taught on this before and had people immediately afterward come up to me and tell me the wrong interpretation of the passage that I just said is not correct. 
you probably have this in your head that this is about your individual life and your individual works. It is not about that. This passage is not about personal piety. There are lots and lots of passages in the Scripture that are about you as an individual and what you individually do for God in your individual life. In fact, I would say there's many more of those in the Bible than there are passages like this. But this is not one of those passages. This is about building God's church. This is not about saying, I have my personal foundation on Jesus, and now I will build my personal life with either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, but either way I'm fine because I've got the foundation. That is false. <laughs> that is not what this is about. Now, that, that, that way of looking at it has led to some really, really terrible things over the years. One of those is the Roman Catholic Church would look at this and say, well, this is the foundation of the doctrine of purgatory. Of course, we see in the Bible that there is heaven and there is hell, and there is no in-between. You either are judged by God to be righteous because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith and you go to heaven, or you are judged to be still in your sin and wicked and you go to hell. Those are the, the only two options. But the Roman Catholic Church has looked at this passage, and, and it is not because of this passage that they believe in purgatory, but they, they would say, oh, well, here's some evidence of it in the Bible. You, you can be on the foundation of Jesus and... You build on that, and your works will decide, you know, maybe you'll go straight to heaven, or maybe you'll go to purgatory, and maybe you'll suffer loss as this is purged away with fire, the things that you did that were wrong. That's just not Scripture. That's not Scripture. Let me tell you what Scripture is. It says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That's it. It says in Luke 16, which is another place that the Roman Catholic Church tries to use to justify purgatory. It says, between all this, this, this is Abraham speaking from heaven to the rich man who is in the flames of hell. He tells him, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I'm just driving home to you here. The Bible does not have purgatory. This does not teach purgatory. The Bible teaches there is heaven, there is hell, there is no in-between. There is no, I guess I'll just let it get burned up for a few years and then I'll make it. No, we need, you're either in Christ or you are not. You're either headed to heaven or you're not. But the thing that is more common in evangelical circles like ours is to look at this passage and to use it as a way to teach what's called easy believism. Easy believism. You know what easy believism says? It says, you profess faith in Jesus, you can accept him as your savior, and then maybe later on you will embrace him as your Lord and start following after what he says to do. That's not coming to faith in Jesus. You can't split up Jesus into how you come to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. You can't just come to Jesus and say, I will only take the priest part of Jesus. I will only take the part where he made an offering for my sin. Later, I will decide whether or not I want to embrace the prophet part of Jesus where I take seriously what his word says. And then maybe after that, I'll embrace the king part of Jesus where I say, he's in charge of my life 
and I ought to do what he tells me to do. No, you come to Jesus or you don't. Don't say, I'm going to split him up and just take a third of Jesus. But some people have used this passage and, and tried to say that it applies to your individual life and if it applied to, it was about your individual life, then maybe easy, easy believism would be the case. Maybe you could say, well, I can just be on the foundation of Jesus and then just live however I want, live like a lost person, think like a lost person, love the world like a lost person, and I'll still make it. Maybe, maybe I'll suffer loss at the end, but I'll make it, and I'll just be, I'll just be so glad to be somebody who's singed in heaven. That is not what the Scripture teaches. Here, let me read you what the Scripture teaches. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Do you hear that? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You hear that? When it's talking about individual piety, it doesn't say, yeah, you know, profess Jesus, have, have this walk down the aisle experience, get baptized, then you're good. It says, here is what it looks like when somebody has actual faith in Jesus. They are no longer at peace with their sin. Guys, you can't have a relationship of of grace with Jesus. You can't come into a new relationship with Jesus without also coming into a new relationship with your sin. You are not saved by walking away from your sin, but you cannot love Jesus and love sin at the same time. It's just not possible. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are saying, my sin put him on the cross, and I hate that, but I embrace him as my Savior. This is not to say you'll never sin again. In fact, you will daily in thought, word, or deed. But you can't walk as the world. You can't be in that position where you're just worldly. There is no such thing as a worldly Christian. It changes who we are to come to faith in Jesus. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He says people will try to deceive you, but do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there you have it. It's not saying that the, the, those who practice homosexuality and sexual immorality and idolaters and adulterers and drunkards and revilers, it doesn't say, well, they'll still make it as long as they profess faith in Jesus, but just as through fire. No, it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news at the end of that passage. And such were some of you. Hear that? Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When the grace of God comes into our life, when we trust in Jesus, He forgives us 
and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness, and he starts us on this path that we call sanctification. Being conformed into the image of Christ, he does not leave us in our sin and say, see you later. It's just not how it works. So what does this mean? When it says that the one whose work is burned up will escape as through fire, what is it talking about? Just keep in mind, what did the verses at the beginning say, and what did the verses at the end say? They were both about how the church is being built up as God's temple. And so if the verses at the beginning are about that, and the verses at the end are about that, I think the verses in the middle are about that too. The church being built up as God's temple. We are on the foundation of Christ. That is the most important thing. But it says here, the most important thing is not the only important thing. You hear that? The most important thing is not the only important thing. It really is the most important thing that you come to know Christ and love Christ and entrust your soul to Christ. And other things are not as important as that. But that doesn't mean that they are unimportant. If you're taking a trip on an airplane, the most important thing is you get on the right airplane. It's going the right direction. But that doesn't mean that it's unimportant if you get on and you find that there are no flight attendants, or if you find that there are no seat belts, or you find that there are no seats on the airplane, I think you would say pretty quickly, yeah, the most important thing is I'm getting there, but I wish I had a seat. This is important too. And as we're talking about building the church, yes, the most important thing is the gospel. That, that's, why, that's why we've been willing to wait years and years to tackle this issue that's, that's been just kind of out there for all this time of, of implementing a plurality of elders in First Baptist Church of Matawan. We, we've had bigger, more important issues to deal with along the way, and our main thing is we need to preach the Bible. We need to have the gospel at the heart. We need to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But that is not the only important thing because God has also given us instructions about other things. And he said, as we are here, as we are gathered together on the rock, the foundation of Jesus, we are to do something. We are to build his church, and we are to build it according to his design with his materials, not just with the things that we find lying around our leftovers, but to say, what are God's plans? What are God's blueprints? Let's do things according to that design. We, we have tackled some some big things in the past. We, we spent a year working through readopting a statement of faith that the church first adopted in 1856. We, we spent a year looking at our denominational affiliation because at the time we were in association with what the Bible calls sexual immorality. And the Bible says clearly in Ephesians 5, 7, do not associate with them. We dealt with that. We, we worked through and spent a long time, longer than I wish we had had to spend, but the Lord was gracious and brought us through it, dealing with the issue of meaningful membership at this church so that we can now look and say, we know who is with us. We know who to shepherd. When there is one lost sheep, we can pursue them instead of just letting them disappear into the ether of the 350 other lost sheep and not really knowing what to do, we dealt with those issues, and we have this one big issue still left in front of us as we want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. So we want to follow God's design. We're going to see together next week in the Scripture, God's design is for one pastor not to be by himself if he can help it. 
but to have those who are also qualified and called, given the necessary gifts and graces, to walk alongside, to help guide and lead and shepherd the church and to shepherd each other. That's God's design. That's what we're trying to do. Is this the most important thing in the world? No. If it were the most important thing in the world, we would have dealt with this a long time ago. But it is still in God's word. It's still something that we need to do. If we don't do this, will we cease to be a true church? Will we be sending people to hell? Obviously not. But God has shown us in his word how he wants us to build his church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's told us that his prescribed design for the church will last. In in verse 12, if anyone builds with gold and silver and precious stones, he says that the day will disclose it. It will be tested by fire, verse 13. And verse 14 says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. What is this talking about? Well, gold and silver and precious stones, those were things that God told Moses and later David to use to build the tabernacle and later the temple. Saying, yeah, you could use your leftovers, you could use the straw that's lying around and just put something up, but here's what I want you to do. Do everything according to the design that was shown to you on the mountain. And here's the proper building materials. This, this has to do with a few things about how the church is built up. It does have to do with doctrine. We don't want to only have the basics of the gospel. We, we want to have a full superstructure to, to be a, a, a buttress of truth, as, as, as Timothy calls it. We, we want to, as it says in Acts 2.42, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. We, we want to thoroughly examine the Scriptures and have doctrine that is built exactly as God would say that our beliefs need to be built. The, the, this building with gold, silver, and precious stones, it has to do with how we would love and serve people. That's also in Acts chapter 2. It says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you hear the love for each other and the love for their neighbors as they were building each other up and gathering in their homes and encouraging each other? They would gather together in, in Solomon's portico to hear the apostles' teaching. They would break off and they would go in their homes and they would love each other. And they would go in their neighborhoods and they would tell the gospel and people were being saved. And that's gold and silver and precious stones that God is using to build up his church. And it also has to do with the boring stuff, like running the organization the, the, the way the sausage gets made behind the scenes, even that needs to be built with gold and silver and precious stones. And that's part of what we're talking about, the boring stuff. How are we going to revise our Constitution? Why are we going to do this? What are the steps? All of these details. Well, it comes down to this. God has laid out instructions for us in the Scriptures. Acts fourteen twenty three. when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord, whom they had believed. Oh, you hear that? The example of the New Testament. Even the command of the New Testament in Titus. Appoint elders in every town, it says. Hmm. Doesn't say just the big churches, by the way. You hear that? We want to do this. We want to change what we can. There's steps ahead. I wrote out some of the steps ahead in my sermon notes here, but I'm just going to... 
I don't know. We'll come to the steps ahead. By the way, I, I wrote a booklet for you. Um, over the last, last year, I sent out a series of uh, six articles through the email newsletter just about elders and why we would do this and what the Bible says. I revised, edited, compiled all that into a booklet for you this week. The deacons are going to give those out by both exits as you go today. And the last page actually has some steps that are ahead. So just so you can look at that and see where we're going, what, what's coming up for us, okay? And I'm just going to leave that rather than making that part of the sermon today. But here's, here's what we want to do. We, we want to take this church. We want to continue to conform it to the Word of God. When we're conforming the church to the Word of God, we're not saying something about how the church used to be, like, oh, this used to be a terrible church, or this church was founded the wrong way, or something like that. This is always our task. If we're not always examining ourselves as individuals and conforming ourselves to the Word of God, you know what's going to happen? We're just going to degenerate into worldliness. And if we're not continually examining our church and continually seeking to conform it to the Word of God, then the same thing will happen. You'll just drift. Drift like a lifeboat at sea instead of having a direction that the Word of God would give. And that's just what we're trying to do. We're kind of trying to constantly take the Bible, compare it to where we are, and do what the Bible says. That's the, the idea. We've got the blueprints. Let's follow them. We have the commands. We have the examples of the New Testament. Let's do what they say. We want to consider this church to be priceless in God's sight. Not just a throwaway where you say, well, it doesn't really matter how you do it. But to say, no, God has said that the church is his bride. And he loves her. And he wants to adorn her. And he has a design for her. And he wants us to do this with beautiful, costly, fireproof materials that he has prescribed. And the last thing that it tells us in this passage is that man's innovations for the church will not last. God's design will last through the fire. As, as me as a pastor, others who would be leaders in the church, and even you, congregation, as you have a responsibility for the church, as we believe that, that's, that's part of how we understand the New Testament. When, when that day comes, there will be a testing by fire. When it says he himself will suffer loss but escape us through fire, you can just imagine walking out of a burning building. That's what it's talking about. The day of fire is coming. And if the building that you built is made out of straw, you're still walking out of the building if you're on the foundation of Jesus. But you see it burning up. Again, I'm not talking about your individual piety. I'm talking about how did we treasure and build up the church of the living God. That's what this is about. If we have gold and silver and precious stones, God's prescribed design, even through the day of fire, that work that we have invested into God's people, God's church, God's design, it will last to eternity. That's what it's saying here. We want to build by God's plans, knowing that eternity is coming, Christ is coming, and he's going to look at our work. And he's going to see how we have followed the plans. Those innovations that will burn up, they can be in doctrine. There are doctrines that are strawy doctrine. That are not going to send people to hell, but boy, they're men's innovation. Thing, things like Arminianism and just this, I would call it almost an idol of the idea of free will that's not in Scripture. Charismatic theology. This idea that God would be continuing to give revelation today in addition 
to his word. That, that we don't have a sufficient Bible, but we need continuing prophecy, things like that. Those are things that are not going to send people to hell, but they're going to be burned up on the last day. You have, even in the way to love and serve people, there's, there's wood and hay and straw. That's things like keeping people on the roll forever, and acting like that's an act of love, neglecting the ministry of the Word to serve tables, saying, well, I just can't get the sermon ready today because... I've just I've got so much other things to do. No, that's that's straw, not gold, silver, and precious stone. Focusing on crowd size instead of on love and faithfulness and spiritual growth, that's going to be burned up on the last day. You know how many churches there are out there? This happens all the time. And say, we could have a massive crowd if we just take these building materials and build them the way that we think of. Well, there may be a massive crowd, and by God's grace, he may even save a bunch of people through that. But God has told us how to do it. Now, I'm I'm not speaking here against every large church. Spurgeon pastored a massive church. It was a faithful church. The 12 apostles, they they pastored by any definition a megachurch in Jerusalem, and it was faithful. So being a large church does not mean that you're built on wood, hay, and straw, but boy, There are some ways you can use wood, hay, and straw to build a pretty big crowd. People see that. There's ways you can run the organization, run it like a business. You hear that all the time. I I guarantee you've heard that before. They ought to run the church more like a business. That's wood, hay, and straw. It's going to get burned up on the last day. The church is not a business. The church is the church of the living God. It is the church of Jesus Christ. Organizing things for efficiency instead of for faithfulness. Setting up pastors to be CEOs instead of shepherds. Feeding Christ's sheep with the word. Guys, yeah, we can think of lots of ways to do things that are going to work. But God has laid out his building plans. He's got his blueprints. Let's build with gold and silver and precious stones according to the design of the New Testament. But you know what? I want to just remind you, here's the foundation foundation is Christ. And if you find yourself outside of Christ, you are not on the foundation. Jesus told a story. There's a storm coming. If you're on the sand, it will be destroyed. If you're on the foundation of the rock, you will stand in that day. Jesus is the rock. Stand on Jesus. That is the most important thing, even as we also try to do the rest. All right, let's pray. God, we pray today that you would take those whose feet are not on the foundation of Christ and turn their minds, turn their hearts, cause them by your grace to let go of their wrong ways of thinking and to see the beauty and the grace of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross for them. Bring them to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit. Cause them to be born again. Rescue them out of the lostness of the sea of sin and worldliness that they are floating in, or even the sea of, of lostness in pretended righteousness and, and seeking, you, seeking to be right by their works. I pray that you put their feet firmly on the rock of Jesus. Grant them to love and know and rejoice in and trust in Jesus for their eternal salvation. God, we thank you for doing that with people here and making us together a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would give us unity and love and faithfulness in opening our Bibles together and seeing the design for the church that you have made and in following your blueprints for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.